Hey there, I'm Gilad Barash, and welcome to Who's Your Data, the podcast that deals with how data influences life and how life influences data, the human side of data analytics. Did you know that the U.S. has one of the highest, if not the highest, maternal mortality rate in the United States? This is especially true for women of color who suffer from lack of access to quality care and not being taken seriously. Join me for a conversation with Mohamed Kamara, founder and CEO of InnovCares, a behavior change platform for women, particularly women of color, that provides access and treatment to culturally sensitive clinicians. Their app combines real-time metabolic health data gathering with telehealth, computer vision, artificial intelligence, patient engagement rewards, and a sense of community. We discuss what it means to be culturally competent and how they use data and AI to provide services such as virtual ultrasounds from home, postpartum care, and a community of online support. We talk about data privacy and what it means to disrupt the healthcare space, an industry that is so ripe for disruption. Muhammad also provides insight on his experiences as a black entrepreneur and advice on navigating that space. So let's get to the interview. Okay, Muhammad, um, welcome to the Who's Your Data podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Gilead. I'm looking forward to this conversation and just hearing more about how we can make healthcare better. Before we start, I wanted to ask you a little bit about kind of your background and what was the sort of motivation for this app? In healthcare, mostly, it's either you, especially a startup, it's either you sit somewhere, you come up with a problem, or the problem finds you. In my case, it was the latter. The problem found me. Uh, my sister was giving birth, her first child, which did not go as smooth, a little complication. She died of pregnancy hemorrhage. So this is her fourth child. When she passed, I had a ton of question. Why was her death so sudden at the age of 35? This is a young woman that was healthy. There was no clear indication of prehistory of, of diabetes and other comorbidities, especially, especially cardiovascular conditions that could have led to complications. There was no history there. So dying of pregnancy hemorrhage, which means that bleeding profusely during delivery and not being able to, the doctors and the clinicians not being able to stop the bleeding, which led to her death. And this happened in my home country, Sierra Leone. Strike two then happened with my aunt in Columbus, Ohio, who passed during childbirth as well. This was her second child. Her first child were twins, went smoothly, the second one. She died of preeclampsia, which is a condition of hypertension during pregnancy that's oftentimes not identified. This is a condition during pregnancy of having elevated blood pressure, which left untreated can lead to complications during pregnancy. And so her pregnancy led to her death in Columbus, Ohio. Um, the son survived. So the, my, um, my dad and my stepmother became caregivers for those three kids. Now, the twins, the, the twins earlier and the son that survived. And then I became caregivers for my sister's kids in Sierra Leone, um, support them financially. My mom oversees them. From th that those perspective, I knew then that there are problems in the States, which is 7 million women are living in maternity care deserts. And the disparities are very alarming. So 7 million women, they're living in maternity care deserts. 
8% of those women are living in areas where there are no OBGYN physicians, little to no OBGYN physicians. And that is uh, as very alarming. And so we went, wanted to create a technology that one, improve access to care to the right clinicians, right? So we, we refer to this as culturally competent physicians. These are physicians that take the time to understand the unique needs of um, the patients they're seeing and their demographic, the environment that patient comes from. Well, that's how the technology was formed. It was from a lived experience to really improve access and as well as education and, and other community um, engagements for women of color. I see what you're saying, that sometimes the, the calling can find you. It's amazing that from that tragedy, you're developing something that will impact millions of women. And so can you talk a little bit more about what that means to have a culturally competent OBGYN and what's the impact on maternal health for women of color for that? Yeah. So there are clearly noticeable differences when a woman engages with a physician who listens to their need. Um, a physician who takes the extra step to understand the uniqueness of that woman without silencing or dismissing their voice. When you silence and dismiss a woman's concern during pregnancy, you leave them very vulnerable to not trust in the health system. That woman doesn't want to go back to seek that care from the hospital or that clinicians, whether that is an inpatient at the hospital when they're delivering or outpatients when they're doing their prenatal checks, right? It silenced their voice. And I'll give you a key example here. Matu was one of our patients who was experiencing infertility, had an OB-GYN physician who was being very dismissal of Matsu's needs. Matsu is a 33-year-old nurse practitioner by trade, lives in Columbus, Ohio, trying to give birth and experiencing this infertility, but had a physician that wasn't culturally competent, being very dismissal of Matsu's need and her voice. So she wanted a second opinion. She found those then online. And that second opinion was being connected to a physician who understands her unique needs and her environment. And this is Dr. Alwoody, who then walked her through during that 30 to 40 minutes conversation on what's really, really causing her infertility and how to actually improve and get pregnant, right? Making her understand that it is not her fault being infertile. It's not her fault. It's not the husband's fault. This should be a, an, an, it should be a more of a, a relaxing environment for them both to try because infertility itself can be the can be an influence of the husband, right? The sperm. Mm-hmm. So the husband has to have a healthy sperm. And uh, and then as a result, in, in a more comfortable environment, not too much pressure, the cycle of the woman, when the woman will have certain certain time of their cycle, will help improve them getting pregnant. So they have that kind of dialogue. And then he'll, he also then prescribed prenatal vitamins, which we then sent to Matsu's home. And then two months after, she sexed as a physician and pregnant. Oh, and wow. nine months after her, yeah, and nine months after her, son John was born alive and well. So that's the impact that a culturally competent providers can have in the life of a woman and change the trajectory to a birthing successfully, being getting pregnant and birthing and bringing a healthy 
baby boy John into the world. So you stress that it makes a lot of sense, not only that there is a, uh, a maternal health care desert in a lot of places in the United States, but it's so it's not only just access to care, but access to the right kind of care, to quality care that is that that is consistent with, uh, like you said, demographics and culture. The app that you provide, can you talk about what services it provides and, and how many people does it service today? Sure. So we're impacting 25,000 women um, and we provide services in primary care, mental health and women's health. And the reason for that is we want to really provide services that treat the whole person, the whole woman and their need. It's not just a subset of that woman because a lot of the issue as around maternal mortality is even after pregnancy and after successful delivering that 12 months, right? Conditions can lead to complications even during that time as well. And then there are some moms that do experience anxiety, postpartum depression. You probably have heard that word. And during that time period, it's very critical for them to have the resources, the financial resources, the educational resources to how to be treated during that during that period of time and to have the support network. And so for us, we've created not just training the women, during, connecting them to the right providers, right clinicians like doulas, midwives, but as well the right type of clinicians to support them during if they that mom do that do experience like mental health, mental health condition, anxiety. So get supported with a clin clinical psychologist or primary care physician as well. And then making sure that they get supported with a network that's cheering them on. So this is a network of all the moms that we refer to as a health tribe. These are moms that say a mom that has experienced pregnancy loss. They will have a support group that they can connect to and they will share materials among each other. And then if there are more personal things that they can share among each other, they will post in our Q&A board that our physicians go in and answer those questions. Again, it's not just the connection point to the right clinician. It's also the support network and the education that these mothers need. Okay, so it's also kind of a little bit of a social media kind of social support network that they, they can uh, talk to each other. One of the services that you provide, I read, was virtual ultrasound. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit how that works? Just out of curiosity, how do you do an ultrasound? Yeah, yeah that's a great question. Great. Virtual ultrasound really can help prevent stillbirths. And the reason for preventing stillbirths is making sure that that baby is healthy and doesn't die. And the mom find, finding out that they have experienced a pregnancy loss. The baby is dead as a result of that. So what the virtual ultrasound allows is for the mom to be at home with the support of an ultrasound technician or midwife to be able to, in real time, get the measurement and the fiddle of the child of the child inside in the movement and be able to share that imaging with that OBGYN OB at the other side out in a, in, a, in a hospital or at home. And they can see in real time that image of that of that the 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 baby and the health of the baby and be able to try, try and tell the mom this is how healthy the baby is with that ultrasound. So this ultrasound is then connected by the mom at home. So is the, is that, the ultrasound mm -hmm. technician coming to the patient's I'm home? Sure. Okay, got correct, you. correct. Um, this is really to support the patients in order to have a trained ultrasound technician to be able to conduct that right. 
Now, if their mom is well trained and well, and then um, don't, during that conversation, they can actually possibly be able to conduct it themselves with a OBGYN physician that can walk them through it. But oftentimes, because of how the levels of the reading itself, we, we usually recommend to either have a trained ultrasound technician to be sent to the patient's home. Is it something that you connect to the phone or? It is then connected to the phone. So the ultrasound itself is placed on the mom's, on the mother's belly and then capturing the fetal and the movement of the child inside. And then that imaging is then shared via at our uh, app to the physician, and then he can do the reading and tell the mom how healthy the baby is, and then say, yes, with comfort, the baby is healthy, the baby is moving, and there's no, all the signs that that, that may lead to fieldbirds. That's another, another component that's super important for us. Okay, so let's talk about data. How does data get used in this context? We know that 60% of maternal mortality, pregnancy-related complications are preventable. We know those facts, right? 60% based on CDC and other governmental organization. If 60% are preventable, and most majority of that prevention is around cardiovascular health condition. So these are conditions like diabetes, hypertension, that are easily preventable. Like diabetes, if diabetes is left untreated, it can lead to pregnancy complications. So what we do is we collect data around the cardiovascular conditions that affect mom, moms during pregnancy. And then we let them know, here is where your true overall health is. Here are the recommendations for you to stay healthy for this, for the sake of yourself and the baby. These are the things that you need to be doing to stay healthy. Part of the, the, the data that's collected, one of that data is BMI. Again, it's not your traditional BMI because that... Or sometimes doesn't account for the demographic of that patient. So right. it's a corrected BMI. And that corrected BMI itself is patented by Nasser. So we did a patent transfer technology in the it, And the corrected BMI then accounts for the true metabolic health of that patient and their demographic as well. So a mom of color may have a high BMI, but they don't consider the mass of that mother. Even yesterday, where we were discussing this with my girl, girlfriend, who is a clinician herself on the problematic of BMI. And she was telling me her BMI, the density itself is not just, so for her, her BMI will say, oh, she is, is obese. And that's not true. She has muscle mass. And right. so that has to be accounted for. Even myself, most of the time, if I go get my um, BMI, the traditionally will tell me that I'm obese. I don't, think I am, um, <laughs> but because of the muscle of my muscle mass itself, right, um, that it, it, it takes account so that that's the reason why it's corrected BMI. So those are the level of data that approximate accuracy of that true measurement of that mom during pregnancy, as opposed to letting them know, hey, your BMI is at this, which is problematic and frustrating, especially for people that come from different demographic. Okay. And so that data itself, by the way, that data is then taken and provided to the physician before that consultation happens. So they have a precursor of what, how that, the true health of that patient and what they have been doing beforehand before they even have that first initial consultation with that um, OBGYN physician. All this data that you collect, when I think about that, it, it sounds like it's a great source of data to be used somehow 
would you do anything with it? Is it something that you could publish it in a way that can be helpful to the industry or is, or use it in some sort of feedback loop to improve care? Do you actually go back and look at that data or utilize it for, especially when you look at, like you said, outcomes of treatments that were helpful and then looking at that historical data? Yeah, so cl clinical in, in, in terms of clinical trials, right, and the efficacy of the technology itself, then the data at the more high level can be used, not on at the patient level because of sure. privacy concern, right? Yeah, yeah. So we can provide that at the, at the aggregate level and say, these are a number of patients that we've treated that are in the control environments and uncontrolled environments and publish that data itself that can be effective and useful for people um, people in, the, in, our, in our space. So yes, it can be collected, but it's, all, it's mostly used for research basis and be able to publish that data itself. So in clinical trials um, to ensuring that uh, the technology is super effective for prevention of um, pregnancy-related complications and the conditions that affect mom during pregnancy. In general, one of the big concerns for consumers using apps and sharing data nowadays is privacy. And in the healthcare space, this is especially important. Um, and so how do you think about privacy as it relates to the product in terms of, I assume patients you know, opt in and share their data but is there disclosure around the kind of data that's being used or what else do you think about when you think about privacy? In building a technology of this kind in this space, everything has to be hyper high tech compliant. So every it's not it's not just the the, the app itself, how the the encryption in the app, um, the biometric data itself, all of that's encrypted. So it has to be hyper high tech compliance in order for you to be let in um, for um, Apple and the Google of the world to be able to allow you to publish your app on the app store. Secondly, it needs privacy of the data is controlled by the patient. So even the health assessments that I was referring to, the patients share that information with their doctor. So patients control that sharing, right, ability. It's, it's now pulled from like the doctor being able to access it as opposed to we put the power in the hands of the patients. We believe truly in that. Other other in the in this space it has been it's usually on the other on the other other side where electronic health records data it has to be then consumed and pulled from the electronic, then shared to the patient. While in this case, it is patients has their data, they opt in to share that data with the with that physician. The power, the power of patient, patient-centered care, is we really truly believe in that, and so patients share that data with the physician before that consultation happened. Again, it's not the other way around. Mm -hmm. And then if data is shared of any kind, it's on, it's all on the aggregate level for research purposes. And um, this is also listed on our privacy and terms and conditions as well. I like the way that you framed it as patient-centered care. And that brings me to something else that I was really excited to ask you about, because in general, healthcare is definitely a space that's ripe for disruption. Um, I think, I personally think there's two industries that are, you know, really have not had the level of, of of innovation, at least not as as the experience, and that's healthcare and travel. I think you know, with healthcare, you still have to go to the doctor, you still have to fill out the forms every time you go. You still have to, and it, it just it, it it sucks. It just sucks. The experience, right, with everything that we've gotten 
accustomed to in the 21st century where banking is immediate online and, and buying tickets and everything. You don't have to see anybody. You don't have to talk to anybody. You get everything done, except for when you need, when you're sick, then you have to go to the doctor. You have to wait in a waiting room. You have to fill out the forms. The machine is broken. And then you have to go get your drugs from the pharmacy. It's just very 20th century and, and travel also the, the whole, it doesn't seem to me that there's been innovation in, in flying for the last like 50 years, at least not from the experience. Like, okay, maybe the seats are a little better. Maybe you get better movies, but overall it still sucks. So as somebody who travels a lot, it just, it sucks. In the healthcare, let's go back to healthcare. <laughs> like I said, it definitely is ripe for innovation and disruption. And it sounds like, you know, two big things that you do, for example, uh, whether it's like the ultrasound from home where you don't have to go into an office to do it and go through that entire manual process, as well as, like you said, sharing your data with the provider rather than having to go in and fill out forms constantly. So it sounds like, you know, that's definitely a, a place that is is ripe for disruption. And so what are your thoughts about that and the future of patient care especially in light of it does seem that there is movement in that industry now between Amazon buying one medical and Walmart getting into health. Um, how do you see the space changing in the near future? That's a great question. Patient-centered care is thinking, as you said, you're thinking through the pain points of that patient at every, at every interaction with the health system. When a patient is at, is at home, they're sick, how do you make it easier for them to get the best care? They have a common common cold or flu. That patient can actually be treated virtually if they have a common cold and flu. That's what some of the conditions that are treated by our, um, telehealth. And part of that is it for us, our patients will go in, they will, you know, as they book they, they go through the booking experience. See less than 60 seconds, they're in the app, sign up and in the app. They go through the booking experience itself of finding a clinician. And after that, after that, they either will pay um, or they'll pay with insurance. And then they will answer intake questions. These are the intake questions that you fill out when you're in that all in, in office visit, right? And that is so frustrating for patients because why can't you make that digitized? So we've digitized that experience. Those intake questions are also filled out as part of the, the booking experience. All seamlessly happen within one or two minutes doing that. And then, then the physician gets a confirmation. Someone is booking an appointment with you. Um, these are their conditions. Here's data that they, they would like to share of how they're feeling. Then you guys do a video or message consultation. All, all at your home. When the physician finds out that hey, you have they they they've looked at it, they've looked at your chat, you have some conditions on say a common flu, they then can prescribe medication, which we then send to patients home directly. I'm not sure if you heard uh, with Matsu's story how we were able to send printed vitamins to her home. Mm -hmm. So we send that send send that directly to the patient's home, and then in the case of Matsu, was a beautiful baby boy, John was brought birth from that. So you are at home there now for you in your case, if you have a common cold, you can, you'll be treated with antibiotic that be, that's going to be sent at home and you don't have to see that doctor in person. And so that helps you with transportation. It helps you with not getting sick by going into the office that or hospital that's always already have sick people, really sick people, which you just probably have a common condition. 
Now, in the case of women's health, there are things that need to be done in person, right? Um, but at least the intake forms and all those stuffs are taken care of beforehand so that the process is very seamless. And if that mom do have an issue with transportation on the app itself, we can allow, we allow for them for clinicians to book right for those mom to and from. So if a mom that doesn't have transportation, they can then have um, someone picks them, pick them up to take them to those in-person prenatal visits. So in the case of one medical and the likes, it's thinking through the journey of that patient and the frustrating part that stops them from access to care. So meaning what, what are the obstacles that will stop them from getting the best patient-centered care at the least price and at the best quality? So thinking through that journey, it makes you create better products for that patient. And the same here in the case of One Medical, Amazon purchasing in One Medical, they're purchasing in actually the, the network, right, that they've yeah. created. So it's the network of doctors that are within that as well. Really, Amazon has purchased the technology maybe that they have created is maybe it's more of an added bonus, but it's really the network. So when you even go in and sell, you um, partner up with the organization or you sell to another entity, you're, they're, you're selling the network of clinicians that you've created over time. In our case, like culturally competent network clinicians. Um, is what those that buyer is buying into. Uh, of course, the added bonus is your technology that makes it all happen. With Amazon uh, having the the delivery infrastructure that goes with the network, kind of makes it like you said the sort of patient centered three sixty degree everything that they need. Even in in areas where we're privileged to have access to care, I know you know friends that don't want to go to the doctor because they just know it's going to take hours. And, and they just don't have time for it. Having a way to streamline it. And yes, there are certain things that you have to go in for, for sure. But being able to streamline processes that you don't have to go in for is amazing. And I really think it, it sounds like you're really at the, at the kind of cutting edge of that disruption in healthcare, which I think is, is super fascinating. Yeah, it's a bill with physician and other clinician in mind, bill with patient in mind. First is the experience of that patient as I... I alluded to all year. Also building with the clinician in mind, I was privileged to build alongside a clinician. So when we even launched, I was seeing 20 to 30 patients with clinicians and see how they interact with that technology as well as they exist in the EHR. Why is that important? That is crucial because of the fact that clinicians are human beings and they have family and loved one at home. And when they go home, you're now requiring them to do additional charting which is taking time away from their loved one, which causes physician burnout. And so we're building with a clinician in mind. You see how they interact with your technology and their EHR. You create that seamless process. So when a patient books an appointment in your app, it then gets allotted into the existing EHR without making more additional work, creating additional work for that physician workflow. It creates happiness for the clinician, higher adoption, and that they can then share that with their patients, right? As opposed to when you, as a technologist, as a company building with, I'm just going to build for the patients and forget the clinicians as well, which are the people that actually touch that patient on a daily basis and forget the impact it creates for their family and their loved ones, which is physician burnout, which is a real thing. So you've got to keep that in mind as well as you build in this space. Doing it patient-centric care and clinician-centric 
care rather than focusing on profits of uh, medical insurance companies. I think, I mean, that sounds revolutionary. It's why I came in this space. I, and, and of course, you the payers, you cannot forget about them as well, like because they do care about quality care and they have their measures and they have they have their reimbursement and the payments, right? So you do have to walk alongside them, and which we do. Um, and so if a pair is an I say your audience and they want to walk alongside with um our, our network, please would love for them to reach out because then we can actually support their patient panel that they have and be able to provide this network of culturally competent providers that listen, that treat patients with dignity and provide the best care to them based on their demographic. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, now what can you do about flying? Can you can you fix travel? <laughs> I love to fly. <laughs> Get to that the is a four hours ahead of time, sit there in uncomfortable seats, <laughs> eat their crappy food in the like, come on. I I uh that is a great question. I wish I wish we have better travels, but it's, it's there's definitely a need for improvement in travel. I am on planes all the time and I'm asking the same questions as you. Why do we have to wait in line for this long? And don't not fl- don't even consider flying out of Atlanta. I fly out of Atlanta, and it is it's a nightmare at times. But good lord, um, there's so much room for innovation in this space, and I hope those that are listening will find solution. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> to improve I, and innovate. I do a good deal of flying in and out of Atlanta, and my rule is I'm like. First or second flight out in the morning. I I do not wait till the afternoon or evening. I know that there is a uh, you know direct correlation between how late the flight is and how much it gets delayed or canceled. So that's my rule. <laughs> See, you're a smart man. <laughs> this is they need they need more smart people like you in those rooms <laughs> that are decisions being made about travel. In my past life, I worked for a company that does it's more like airline travel they do they send high sensitive information like blood transfusion right mm-hmm. to get that to the to the patients uh before they die so they, they transport those things part of that is you have to be really considerate of the time limit it it's sure. taken from when you you get the blood to to the patients in the hospital very quickly so I've seen some innovation in this space because of that first hand experience. And then of, of course, calculating the numbers around that, being a finance person, you have to calculate even how much time it's going to take the, the, the miles. Right. So happy to have that chat as well. Yeah. You know what? We're going to have to have that chat one time too. I can't imagine I, in my mind, I'm seeing, okay, you're, you know, you're, you're rushing with, with somebody's blood and then you get stuck in a two-hour TSA line, and you're like, "Damn!" <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have clear or TSA pre-check. Exactly, exactly. And this is this is uh, this is why, yeah, you you fly chart like there are different types of planes that right, you fly. Right, okay. So for them, that but that's a conversation. Uh, <laughs> the whole well, that's a new, that that's a whole new episode. To the extent that there are potentially many opportunities to address gaps in representation and inclusion, the way that you have with this uh, innovative app. Can you talk a little bit about what your experience was as a black entrepreneur trying to address such a gap and whether you would have any advice for uh, budding entrepreneurs that are looking to do something similar? This is always a question on reflecting, right? You build from a, from lived experience. It gives you empathy of the user experience. 
both um in our case from the patient, the mom, and their loved ones that interact with the tech from the physician. Because you then if you build from that, you build from lived experience and you create the workflow of that patient and that physician from an empathy point of view. That's usually the best entrepreneurs I've I've are biased because they're building from that lived experience. The other side of it though as well, at least in this space, if you're building if you're building in this space as a minority entrepreneurial, there are hurdles you're gonna experience. We had built the technology from ground up without any venture money. And then last year we did get some. And then this year, of course, as well, we've gotten some. We have new people on the cap table, like Andres Inouye, that's coming in on the cap, new cap table as well. But building in this space as a minority founder, it is getting access to capital is very, very hard. And you need to think through that, that it's going to be challenging. You're going to receive a lot of no's. But then there are also times as well that you receive some term sheets that are not the best friendly terms and you have to say no to those even though you you're receiving some no's uh-huh. so it's finding that balance like okay i should take i should take money from anyone don't do that because every time you take money from a, an investor it is a long-term relationship that you're cultivating and they need to come with an added value beyond just the capital it is a network they're gonna open so even now, recently, we're taking some a check from Andres in our eyes, right? Our first venture check that we took was from a firm called Jumpstart Foundry. The second one now, this here, is from Andres in our eyes. And for the, for them, is their network, right? It's what we're betting into because they have invested in companies like Facebook and the likes. And so they have had successful track record of exit that they've invested in founders that have exited or went IPO. Mm-hmm. So now that we're betting on Andreas in our eyes and their network, hopefully then we can utilize that effectively to close our one and a half million dollar round that we're raising. And so that's again thinking through a strategic being a strategic investor, right? Having having a strategic investor on your cap table, not just taking any money from anyone. And even to the extent doing your research too. So I spoke to all the founders that are taking money from them and I they validated that. They were able to close their rounds because of that because of their network that address and rise opened, right? And even for myself, I didn't even it's not only talk to talking to founders. I even took that further. For me, I went on and, and did a search recently and see how they partner up with hospitals. They've been partnered up with a hospital down in in New York. And for me, it's like I'm very proactive. I know that I looked up the CEO of the hospital, and then I I hit them up um, yesterday actually, and the CEO and I are connecting on Friday. If we book some time on my calendar to talk about their relationship and then how we can support them. So again, you as a founder, be proactive even in the midst of you getting the nose. Build as what 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 gifts that you have as a minority founder is resilient. Don't never take a no for an answer, right? And that's 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 at least my character as a person because I've lived through a civil war. And no is a is nothing. Someone that has someone that has lived through bullets and fires. <laughs> um, getting noses from people is is something that just shake up and move on to the next next the next investor that I can actually we uh, the company that can actually build with. I hope that 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 helps and answer that question. Uh, really, mostly is resiliency. Absolutely answers the question. That first of all, like you said, resilience. 
But my takeaway from that, which I think is really important, is that the investors, it's not only them interviewing you, it's you interviewing them and making sure that it's a good fit in both directions. So what's on the horizon for you and for Care? Like, what's your next set of challenges that you're going after? So uh, we have the, this grand mission and goal to impact the life of one million women going through their birthing journey. And so what does that look like is partnership with payers, right, that have members that are that they've cultivated a relationship with that, that, that they can entrust with us to take care of. So those pairs are the critical people for our growth. And so a relationship with commercial payers, meaning insurance companies like United Healthcare or um, others in this space, Humana Health of the world, right, Centines of the world, really cultivating those relationships. So if there are any that really will have want to have a discussion and see how we solve problem for women of color and ensuring that they go through their birth and journey with dignity and receiving the best cultural and competent care. We'll love to have that dialogue with them. And so for us, our growth trajectory is partnering up with the pairs and ensuring that we take care of their members and as well as partnering up with community um, organizations like FQHCs where this woman is going into to, to get supported in hospitals. So that's 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 the trajectory and growth. And then ensuring that we close this round so we can hire more people to support our mission and actually have people that are mission-driven that are here by improving the maternal mortality crisis for women of color. If people want to learn more about the company or about you, about the app, where can they look for, for information? Yeah, so we are on Android and iOS, and we've got a web version. So you can find us at www.inofcares.com. And you can reach us directly, myself and all company. At, for my personal email is mkamar at enoughcares.com. So it's M and then K-A-M-A-R-A at enoughcares.com. Or you can reach us directly to the company's email at contactus at enoughcares.com. Sounds good. Well, Muhammad, thank you so much for sharing your journey uh, with us. This was a really, really great conversation. Thanks so much, Gilead, for having me. This is fun. Well, thanks for joining us today and listening to this episode. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. And if you have any questions you'd like addressed, send them to now at gmail.com. That's now, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks and see you next time on Who's Your Data? <laughs>